visiting and happy Lord's Day and happy Grandparents Day to those who are grandparents. This is also Patriots Day in our country, which we commonly call 9-11, and a day which we will never forget. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for this time, this blessed time in your word and before you as we come before you to come with hearts full of gratitude and all that you continue to do for us. May you use this time to move me out of the way that you may speak through your word and your Holy Spirit would abide even now. Open the hearts of everyone here that they may hear from you and receive from you what you would have for them. And we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this week and in our surrounding area has been somewhat of a tragic week, has it not? With the abduction and killing of an innocent jogger, as well as the senseless killing of four other individuals by a shooter who just went into a shooting rampage. What causes one to do such senseless acts? We know that deep down in the heart of man is sin and evil. And Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is what? More deceitful than all else and is desperately sick and who can understand it and I will read our text our text is actually Luke 13 1 through 5 I'm going to turn there now and I'll read that but we're going to come back to this text Luke 13 1 through 5 Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Going back to, I want to go back to 9-11 and give some biblical perspective on what led up to the horrific tragedy and the people who orchestrated it all. This, no doubt, was the bloodiest day in American history. It was 21 years today when we remember that evil done on American soil. But we will never forget. 
We solemnly remember those families affected by such a tragedy on that day. Some of you may not have been born, but for those of you who were, you remember where you were, don't you? You remember what you were doing when you first learned of the news. We know that the heinous acts that destroyed the Twin Towers in New York, as well as destroyed parts of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and those killed aboard a plane in Pennsylvania accounted for almost 3,000 lives. What we do know is that they were a group of terrorists from the Middle East. The question always comes as to why and how one could do such an evil act. Well, once again, it goes back to the evil and wretchedness of the human heart. What we do know is that the terrorist group was more than likely headed up by one person, namely Osama bin Laden. His name is familiar because he is believed to have been the one who probably sponsored the suicide hijackers and more than likely was involved in training them as well, another name that also became very familiar to us was the name Saddam Hussein. He was actually a ruler in Iraq who supported the terrorist acts that were perpetrated by Osama bin Laden. So in other words, they were in cahoots with one another. We know that these acts go back to the wickedness of man's heart. And Paul tells us in Romans 3, 10 through 18. You may want to turn there. Romans 3, 10 through 18. Looking at the human heart. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What do you have to get in your minds, and I know it may surprise you, but despite what you hear, people are not basically good, but evil. People are mostly driven by their selfish desires and what they want. All we have to do is, all we have to do to see this is to look at a baby. He or she, most of the time, would say, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And you're usually saying to them, no, don't touch that. No, stop that. You don't usually say to him or her, yes, yes, keep doing that so it'll fall on your head. <laughs> no, 
selfish pleasure that causes one to kill or to do harm. That is why James says in James 4, 1 to 2, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If one knows anything about the Middle East and the area where Israel is located, one knows that it is a constant place of unrest. So why so much turmoil and unrest in Israel? We have to take a journey back in history to the days of Abraham in Genesis. Much of it boils down to L-A-N-D, land. And you may say, why so much fuss over a piece of land? Well, let me tell you why. God made a covenant with Abraham some 4,000 years ago and gave him and his Jewish descendants a large territory of land. In Genesis 15, 18 through 21, it says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. These were all the ites. <laughs> and the ites were idol worshipers. What you may or may not know is that Abraham's father, Terah, also worshipped false gods. He more than likely worshipped the moon god. There were two places that people worshipped the moon god. One was Ur, which is located today in the Persian Gulf that we know as Kuwait. And the other was Haran, which is modern-day Iraq. If you remember Abraham and where he was born, he was born in Ur. And later he lived in Haran. We also know that a great battle will one day happen in this very strategic piece of land. And Revelation tells us about it. It's the battle of what? The battle of Armageddon. This is where massive armies from the north and south are going to come together and earthly kingdoms will rage war against Christ. Revelation 17, 12 through 14 talks about this. And the Bible tells us that blood will be splattered all over the land of Israel. In the end, Christ will return triumphantly to obliterate his enemies and set up his kingdom of peace and righteousness on the earth. So to say the least, the Middle East is a very important piece of land. And what you have to understand is that when God made this promise to Abraham, is that all of these other pagan nations were occupying this land. And so God wanted the Jews to drive them out of the land because they had turned to idol worship and have forsaken the true and living God. Therefore, you can see where the conflict would have started because they were saying, this is our land. And the Jews were saying, no, this is our land. Because we were here first, they were saying, but God wanted them driven out because they had forsaken him as the only and true 
and living God. What you have to understand also is that the Middle East is one of the richest pieces of land in the world. The land is very fertile. There is oil among, along the Arabian Peninsula. There were trees that were very valuable there. And there was a lot of mineral wealth around the Dead Sea. All of this would make the land incredibly, an incredibly valuable piece of land. And God gave all of this to Abraham and to his offspring, the Jews. This was really a divine judgment on the pagan nations because they, they not only because not only did they not worship the true and living God, but they worshiped in such a way as to offer up human sacrifices and even their own children to the god Molech. So you can only imagine how God must have felt or sensed about these idol worshipers. So he hated it. We know that through Isaac came the Jewish people, but Abraham also had another son who was an illegitimate son who came through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And that son's name was none other than whom? Ishmael. Ishmael. And from Ishmael came 12 nomadic tribes that lived in northern Arabia. And thus you get the Arabs. So, the Arabs claimed the land because of Ishmael, who was also Abraham's son. But what you have to remember is that Ishmael was not the son of promise. But who was? Isaac was. That is why there has been a conflict between the Jews and the Arabs for these thousands of years. What you have to understand is that there are some 250 million Arabs today in only about 50 million Jews. Now hopefully you can see clearly the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs over the land. The good news is that one day the Jews will fully possess their land and that will be when Christ comes in glory and turns their hearts to him. At one time the Arabs were divided into small tribes and groups. They had different lifestyle and different religious bents. But in the 7th century, they started to unite because of a man by the name of Mohammed. You all heard that name? Mohammed. He was born in the city of Mecca on the Arabian Peninsula in AD 70. In Arabic, his name means highly Praised. He claimed that he was a direct descendant of Ishmael. It is said that when he turned 40, he was on a mountain in Mecca, and he supposedly had a vision and said that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. I do think he must have been mistaken, and it was more than likely not Gabriel, but the fallen angel Lucifer who appeared to him. He said that he had had several visions over several years, and during this time, he says, Gabriel gave him the text that would become the book of Islam, the Quran. 
So two years later, Muhammad began what is called a holy war against infidels. And an infidel was anyone who did not acknowledge Muhammad as a prophet and did not worship a God called Allah as the only God. So Muslims see war as a way to bring people into their religion. So I don't know if you have heard the term jihad or not, but jihad, J-I-H-A-D, is considered a holy war because it is a war that brings infidels into submission under Islam. They come with the phrase, convert or die. The Islamic world has always hated Israel, but because America has always been a supporter of Israel, they hate America as well. Some of their literature states Israel as the, quote, small Satan, and America as the great Satan. There are about 1.2 billion Muslims in the world today, and we know that not all Muslims are extremists. What we do know is that violence against infidels and the concept of holy war is foundational to their Islamic theology and ideology. The word Islam means surrender or submit. There are six basic articles of faith or tenets in Islam. A simple Islamic doctrinal statement would look something like this. Muslims believe that Allah alone is the one true deity. He has neither father nor mother. Similarly, he has no sons or daughters. He is not a trinity. He is not the God of the Old Testament, and he is not the God of Christianity. Allah, according to Islam, is the God of all humanity. Sounds familiar? The God of this world? Listen, Allah is no more than Satan. Two, Muslims believe in all the messengers and prophets of Allah. According to Islamic literature, Allah sent thousands of prophets, Jesus being one, but Muhammad is the greatest of them all. Three, Muslims believe in the revelations and the Quran. They believe the Quran is the most holy book. Islam also recognizes other sacred writings, including the original manuscripts of the Bible, but Muslims claim that all other holy writings have been corrupted and tainted by translation and copyist errors. Only the Quran is pure, and every word of the Quran is the word of Allah, as given directly to Muhammad. Four, Muslims believe in the angels of Allah. They believe angels are created beings that have no material or physical needs. Angels require neither food nor drink. The angels are inferior to Allah, but superior to humans, and they may be either good or evil. Five, Muslims believe in a day of judgment. All the dead will be raised to stand trial before Allah, and they will be judged according to their works. It is hoped by most Muslims that if a person follows Islam and does enough good deeds to outweigh the bad, 
Allah may allow such a person to enter paradise rather than sending that person to hell. But there are no guarantees of this. One's ultimate destiny is subject solely to the will of Allah. In Islam, there is no atonement for sin or promise of forgiveness and no assurance of any kind except for those who die in jihad. Those people, martyrs, are guaranteed eternal life in paradise. Six, Muslims believe in Qadah and Qadar, Arabic words signifying Allah's timeless knowledge and power to execute his plans. Islamic determinism goes far beyond the biblical doctrine that God is ultimately sovereign over all, working all things together for good. Instead, Islamic predestinationism amounts to a kind of fatalistic determinism where everything that occurs, both good and evil, is thought to come directly from the hand of Allah. And a few other comments. Um, Islamic fundamentalists regard all non-Muslims, including Christians, to be infidels. Most moderate Muslims regard Jews and Christians, people of the book, as somewhat better off than pagans and gross idolaters, followers of any other religion. But like all non-Muslims, Christians and Jews are deemed infidels nonetheless. A verse in the Quran, which they quote as 9-5, authorizes the faithful to slay the idolaters wherever you find them. And the faithful Muslim believes Allah himself is unknowable, distant, and impersonal. Moreover, Allah only loves only faithful Muslims. He does not love sinners or infidels. Jesus Christ, Muslims are taught, was a mere man, a prophet, and not God incarnate. In their judgment, anyone who affirms the deity of Christ has made him into a second God. Such a person is therefore guilty of polytheism and has become an infidel. This is an unforgettable sin called a shirk in Islam, and it will send a person to hell forever. That is the main reason it is hard for any Muslim to embrace Christianity. They have been programmed their entire lives to believe that Christianity is polytheistic. And therefore, if a Muslim ever acknowledges Jesus as God, he will go to hell forever. Further, Muslims deny that Jesus died on a cross because they claim he was the prophet of Allah. And Allah would never let that happen to one of his prophets. Obviously, if Christ did not die on the cross, he did not have to rise from the dead. So Muslims denied the resurrection too. Islam further teaches that no one can have salvation but a Muslim. Even though a Muslim can never know whether he has salvation, only Muslims will have it in the end. Clearly, Islam and Christianity are mutually exclusive. Both claims to be the only true way to God. Both cannot be right. And again, Muslims die with no way of knowing they are where they are going. The faithful Muslim can only hope that Allah will judge him worthy of paradise. But there is no savior in Islam and no promise of salvation. Muslim theology has no atonement for sin and therefore no basis for forgiveness. Furthermore, Allah promises perfect justice in which no sin will be overlooked at the final judgment. It is therefore a hopeless religion. 
with frightening prospects for eternity. Very sad. With that being said, the fact of the matter is that the Islamic system is a very powerful and destructive system and a destroyer of biblical truth and Christianity. Many all of the world, such as those in the Middle East, Africa, Indonesia, and other parts of Asia are being persecuted and dying even now because of Islamic forces. In the mind of Islamic leaders, they believe that the only way that there will be true peace for them is if the nation of Israel is utterly destroyed. So radical Muslims believe that they must defeat Israel and declare jihad against Israel and America. So their motives behind the terrorist attacks are that they believed that they had a mandate from Allah to wage war or holy to wage jihad or holy war against Israel and America. They believe that if you fight the infidel, you will go to heaven. If you turn away, you will go to hell. So, they, so in their warped theology of Islam, they believe that the only sure way a person can go to heaven is to wage a holy war and give up his own life. As mentioned before, in Muslim theology, there is no such thing as forgiveness, and the hope of paradise is not a sure thing. However, their theology believes that there is one sure way to heaven, and that is to die in a jihad or holy war. And the Quran says, and if you be slain or die on the path of Allah, then pardon from your, and then pardon from Allah, and mercy is better than all your amassing. For if you die or be slain, verily unto Allah shall you be gathered. What do you have to understand is that this brainwashing begins at a very early age, as early as five years old. Children are recruited to become willing martyrs. How many of you have heard the name Hamas or Hezbollah? These are radical Islamic groups and the sad thing is that they have no shortage of volunteers who want to be a part of such evil and bizarre groups. Most of the suicide bombers are young men between the ages of 18 through 23. It is like recruiting for an army, and most of them are single men. And what these recruits are promised is that when they die, they will not only go to heaven, but when they get there, they will be welcomed by 72 black-eyed virgins who will have eternal sexual relations with them. But this is very perverted idea, has a deep root in the beginnings of Islam. The Quran itself permits up to not one, not two, not three, four wives. It is said that Muhammad had some 13 wives in addition, he had many other concubines. Hopefully this helps you to understand better how this all came to a head on September 11, 2001. These were evil acts done by evil men with wicked hearts and had no other reasons than to be utterly destructive and to cause fear and anxiety. Quickly, people want to know where was God on September 11th and why did such a disaster occur? The question would not be, why does disaster occur sometimes? But the question really should be, why doesn't disaster happen all the time? I remember while working on the junior high staff at 
for the church. One of the students came to the junior high pastor, upset that something happened in his life, and he told the pastor, he said, I don't deserve this. And the junior high pastor did not miss a beat and said, no, you don't. What you deserve is hell and damnation. The, the junior hire was stunned, to say the least. The fact of the matter is that God owes us nothing but judgment, but yet he gives us his mercy and grace. God says in Romans 8, 28, that he causes how many things to work together for good? All, all things. John Piper has written this. All things includes the fall of sparrows, the rolling of dice, the slaughter of his people, the decisions of kings, the failing of sight, the sickness of children, the loss and gain of money, the suffering of saints, the completion of travel plans, the persecution of Christians, the repentance of souls, the gift of faith, the pursuit of holiness, the growth of believers, the giving of life and the taking in death, and the crucifixion of his son. So is God silent when a tragedy happens? Absolutely not. He is not silent. God is where he's always been, and that is on his throne. The question should not be, why did God allow so many people to be kill the real question should be why God allows any of us to take another breath God is incredibly merciful and patient with us as a sinful race is he not yes he is he protects us in a very real sense from the terrible and devastating effects of our sins and don't get it twisted it is not your lucky star or luck that saves you from a tragedy but it is God's grace and mercy that protects us. The fact of the matter is that we have become so used to his amazing grace that we don't really grasp the enormity of our sin. But every now and then, God allows us to see what evil looks like in all of his ugliness and horror. And that's what happened on 9-11. This helps us to see God's justice and how he punishes sin. And that puts his glory on display. Just as much as his goodness, which is on one of his attributes, he puts his glory on display. So, dear friends, the fault is not with God, but with us, because we are sinners. When I first heard about the tragic events of 9-11, my mind immediately went to this passage in Luke 13, and we can turn back to Luke 13 verses 1 through 5, which we read earlier. So back in our text in Luke 13, to put this in proper context, Jesus has been talking about judgment all through Luke 12 and has been talking about the fact that one should settle their case with their accuser before they come before a judge. In a more profound sense, he was saying, you better settle your case with God before you get to God at the judgment seat. Because then it is too late. Because you will then be sent to eternal punishment. So, the people there, more than likely they were Jews, 
They want to know, what about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices? The people here were, like I said, were more than likely Jews, and the, this fits right in line with Pilate and his character. He was known for being very wicked to the Jews. So what he had done was to command some of his soldiers to go and kill some Galilean Jews. While, no less, they were offering sacrifices. And where would they have been offering sacrifices? In the temple. So no other place than the temple. So these soldiers were to go out and hunt down these Galileans who were offering sacrifices in the temple, and this would have more than likely have been the Passover. There could have been as many as a quarter of a million animals sacrificed during Passover. Pilate, no doubt, would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover. We're not sure, but these could have very well have been some rebellious Galileans and may have done something wrong against Rome, so the soldiers went looking for them, and they found them in the temple where they were offering up their sacrifices. So this is what Pilate's soldiers did. So Pilate's soldiers would have found them and cut them up in a very despicable way and mixed their blood with the blood of the animals, those sacrifices. So in the minds of the people, they were thinking, these were not pagans like the Romans. They were only doing what they were commanded to do. And that was to offer their sacrifices and to confess their sins. So they were wondering, how can such a bad thing happen to good people? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but there are no good people. Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You may have heard it said, it is not why do bad things happen to good people. Rather, it should be why do good things happen to bad people. So in verse 2, it says, and Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? The people may have been wondering, were they really worse sinners than anyone else? And may have been wondering, how could this just happen to them like this? And for crying out loud, they were in the temple worshiping. The point again, it's not why did it happen to them, but why didn't it happen to us? None of us deserve to live, but deserve to die because we have so offended a holy God. But God is full of mercy, is he not? And compassion, is he not? And patience. This shows us the long-suffering, the kindness, and the compassion of God. We will know that we will all one day die. And the ratio is what? One to one. We don't really know when we're going to die, but we all know that we will die. 
So why did God let all of the sinners live in the Old Testament? And why does he let so many sinners live today? Because he is a compassionate, merciful God and calling men to repent. It was not because some of the people were better than others who didn't die. Jesus didn't miss words and says it very clearly in verse 3 where he says, I tell you, no, but unless you do what? Repent. You will all likewise what? Perish. Now, some of the Jews in Jerusalem felt that the Galileans were a little worse than they were, so they may have been thinking, well, some of them were probably bad, and that is why they were slaughtered in the temple. Now, Jesus brings it close to home and gets to the heart of their thinking and says in verse 4, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. What you have to understand is that Siloam was actually a part of Jerusalem. The fact of the matter is that these 18 people were not doing anything except walking or passing by just when the tower falls. So, it seems quite tragic. In their minds, most of the people thought that a calamity or tragedy happened to a person because they were worst of sinners. And so Jesus asked the question, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Sloan fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? They knew that the answer was no. And what we have to get in our minds is that tragedies are not always a way to single out those whom we may consider evil. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in verse 5 where he says, I tell you, no, but unless you what? Repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it again. The real issue is repentance. It is not that someone was killed in a tower or killed in a plane. The heart of the issue is that if you don't repent before death comes, you too will perish eternally. It's not a matter of how one dies or when they die or what caused their death. At the end of the day, the issue is repentance. Jesus is telling them to repent because if they don't, they too will perish and be judged. It's almost like I can hear John the Baptist in the background crying out what? Repent, repent, repent. He is letting them know that they are no more righteous because they were not slaughtered by Pilate's soldiers and they are no more righteous because they escaped a tower falling on them. Just because your plan landed safely and someone else's crashed does not mean that you were any better than the, purple, than the people whose plane crashed. The fact of the matter is that on 9-11, there were believers who perished. And on 9-11, there were unbelievers who perished. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where he says in Matthew 5.45 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Very vivid picture. We have some neighbors by us who are not believers. You know what? When it rains, does the rain avoid their house? No. It rains on their house just like it rains on our house. Jesus' cry to those who were asking these questions, as I mentioned before, were more than likely the Jews. They were wondering, why was he calling them to repent? They're the righteous ones, so they thought. They were the ones who were religious. They could never see themselves as sinners. They no doubt knew and repeated the Shema every day from Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They knew it in their head but it had not transformed their hearts. They knew the law, no doubt, but they knew it and they had not kept it perfectly. True biblical repentance always involves turning from sin and turning to Christ. So if you have been continuing in a pattern and lifestyle of sinfulness, you have to literally, if this has been your direction, you need to, Stop going in this direction if this has been the pattern of your life and make a 180 degrees turn and go in this direction where Christ would have you to go. That is true change in heart of repentance. Turning from sin and turn to Christ and walk in a pattern of righteousness. So repentance is not just being sorry for your sins that do not lead to life, but true repentance that leads to life is the repentance that leads to faith in Christ. That is why Acts 17.30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The message that Jesus gives is that death can come suddenly. And without warning, the writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9, 27, where he says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes what? The judgment. So is God silent during a tragedy? No. He is still on his throne. He is sovereign over all. But it does not matter if you were born in this church or have a member, have been a member all of your life, if you have never truly repented, God is calling you to repent. Because remember, remember, it is not just bad people who get killed. It could be anybody. It could be me. It could be you. So the call is to repent before you come to a tragedy. And before you come to a tragedy, and it may very well be too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we
have heard some weighty things that you have given even in speaking to the religious Jews of old who thought that they were righteous and good and better than others and yet they had missed the mark because their lives were full of hypocrisy and they had a sad faith but not a real faith they were not those whose hearts had been transformed they <clears throat> were confessors in one sense but no real heart change and father we pray even now that there may be some in this congregation some who we know who have not, not or never really come to the point of repentance and faith and have turned from their sin and their wicked lifestyle and pattern of life and turn to you Christ as the only way of salvation through faith <clears throat> so we pray even now that this might even be the day that you might transform their hearts and their lives to bring them to you may your Holy Spirit work even now to transform hearts for your glory to put your glory upon display you do that even through your wrath so we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus.